Jesus, pray that you would use the words in your scripture to help us follow you into your world. We pray this in your name. Amen. I recently read a true story about a man named Steve who had a talent for being in the right place at the right time. For instance, he met Dave Thomas long before Thomas started the first Wendy's. And Steve knew that Thomas one day was going to make it big. So when he was offered the opportunity to go in on the first Wendy's, it seemed a little risky to him. So he said, no, thank you. Later, he met Colonel Sanders and was given an opportunity to buy stock in KFC. But he didn't agree with some of Sanders' ideas, so he declined. Still later, he met Ray Kroc, who was starting up McDonald's. Passed on that one, too. Well, finally, Steve met a lawyer who suggested that he invest in a company his son was starting, but it had a funny name, Microsoft. So he said no. Steve had an incredible talent for being in the right place at the right time and blowing it. Uh, nobody could snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory the way Steve could. Today I'm going to talk about the 10th verse out of 10 verses that can change your life. And today's verse is about a woman named Esther who, unlike Steve, knew how to seize an opportunity when she saw it. But in her case, it wasn't an opportunity to get rich or be comfortable. It was an opportunity to fulfill the purpose for which she was made. And this verse can change your life because all of us were made for a purpose. And that purpose is to know God and be a part of what he's doing, be part of his rescue mission to this world, the mission he started in Jesus and he's carrying on today. And how rich and meaningful our life is depends on whether or not we seize the opportunities that come our way to fulfill that purpose or settle for the counterfeit purposes our culture offers instead. Things like wealth, achievement, comfort, image, stuff like that. I have a friend who says that he thinks he and his wife missed their true life's calling, which was to be trust fund babies. That would be a counterfeit purpose. And what is so inspiring about Esther is when it came to that crossroads in her life, she rejected the culture and chose to embrace God's purposes for her life instead. And it is one of the best stories in the Bible. Go home and read it. It's a page turner. Lots of action. No begats. Well, you know, they can get in the way. But let me give you the cliff note version of the story, which, and this is a moment, a former English teacher giving you cliff notes, so... Never going to happen again. The story takes place in 470 B.C. in the Persian Empire, which stretched from modern-day Iran all the way to Egypt. And the king, named Xerxes, decides to throw a six-month party where he invites several thousand of his closest friends to come and drink themselves into an alcoholic stupor for six months. That's a long party. And plus, it gave Xerxes a chance to show off all of his wealth and power. That's a, a counterfeit purpose, right? The... Alcohol, pleasure, sex, showing off all your stuff, that's a counterfeit purpose. Well, at the end of this six-month party, he calls for his wife to come in and show off her beauty. But the text implies he meant to do that in kind of a humiliating way. So his wife says, hmm, let me see. Appear naked before several thousand men after six months of animal house? No thanks, I'm not going to come. Well, then all of Xerxes' advisors start to get kind of anxious, and they say, we can't let this happen. She gets away with this. This wives everywhere will start to act up. Little male insecurity going on there. So they say, here's what you need to do, Xerxes. Get rid of her and get a new queen. Then wives everywhere will respect their husbands. Right. That'll work. 
So he gets rid of her. And then he has an empire-wide beauty contest to pick the next queen based on what? The talent competition? Her ability to discuss the role of Greek culture in Persian architecture? No, based on her beauty. As Pastor John Ortberg points out in a sermon on Esther that's influenced parts of this sermon, he says, you know, it's hard for us in our day and age to understand that there was once a culture so shallow, so superficial, that middle-aged men would actually try to impress people by showing they had enough wealth and power to attract a younger, beautiful wife. <laughs> Shocking that such a culture existed. Horrifying. But it did. It once existed. So Xerxes holds this empire-wide Persian idol contest and a you got that good and a, a, a Jewish woman named Esther is chosen as queen and Esther is Jewish and now she is set up for a lifetime of luxury comfort and prestige as long as she doesn't rock the boat but then in chapter 2 that was all just chapter 1 Xerxes' chief official, a man named Haman, decided he didn't like the Jews and he was going to kill all of them. And he gets Xerxes, who does not know that Esther, his new queen, is Jewish, to go along with it. So Esther's cousin Mordecai goes to her and in a stirring speech he says, you've got to go to the king and get him to save us. Well, Esther says, I can't, because it's against the law even for the queen to go speak to the king if she hasn't been summoned. And the penalty for breaking that law is death, unless he grants an exception. Furthermore, he hasn't asked for me in over a month. He's already bored with his new queen. Because, you see, that's what living for counterfeit purposes does to us. We always, it leaves us always wanting something else, right? It's never enough. The toys are never cool enough. The purchase is never big enough. The new spouse is never new enough to keep us interested. And so our lives become dominated by one word, more. We always want more. Well, then Mordecai says to Esther, look, don't think you're going to escape just because you're the queen. If you refuse, God will save his people some other way, but you'll perish. And then this line that can change your life. And who knows, but that you have come to your position for such a time as this. In other words, Esther, you have not been brought to this point in your life for the sake of getting some really great clothes and driving the coolest chariots. You have not been brought to this point in your life just to be the ultimate trophy wife and enjoy a life of wealth, prestige, and comfort. You have been brought to this point in your life to be part of what God is doing, to partner with Him in making up there come down here, to relieve the suffering of others and show them that there is a God in the universe who loves them. Esther, don't buy into the counterfeit purposes of your culture. It is for such a time as this that you have come to this point. Esther Santal, this is your moment. And fortunately... Esther knew an opportunity when she saw one. So she says, pray, get all the community to pray and fast for me because I can't do this alone and I'm going to need God's help. And I'll go to the king and if I perish, I perish. Story has a happy ending. The king receives her, grants her request, and the Jews are saved. Haman gets hung, so it wasn't a happy ending for him, but everyone else was happy. Let me ask you this. What is your purpose? And what are the counterfeit purposes you may be living for? Your ultimate purpose is the same as Esther's, to know God intimately and to partner with Him in His rescue operation to this world. But we get that confused, don't we? We get that confused sometimes with the, the counterfeit purposes our culture offers us. 
Years ago, the, the toy company Mattel produced both a talking G.I. Joe and a talking Barbie doll. Only in one of the batches, the factory got the voice boxes mixed up. <laughs> right? So when, kid pull, when kids pulled the string on the G.I. Joe, it said in this high falsetto voice, let's shop till we drop. And the Barbie would say in this deep manly voice, hit the ground now, hard, hard, hard. <laughs> kind of confusing if you're a kid. That's a metaphor. Someone named the devil has switched our programming. So now when our culture pulls our string, we say, let's shop till we drop. Or let's get as much sex as we can grab. Or let's make sure to keep up our image. When our maker's original design for us was to hit the ground hard, 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 and have an adventure with him and make an up there come down here. Because you see, in the words of Mordecai, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know that you haven't come to the job you have? Or the connections you have? or the neighborhood you live in, or the money, or the time, or the talents you have. How do you know that you haven't come to those things for such a time as this? Because God didn't give us those things just to enjoy them on our own. Just like Esther, He put us in those positions to use what He has given us to be part of what He's doing in the world. We didn't get to where we are on our own. Yeah, we worked hard maybe, but you know what? It's God who put us in America, where we have a lot of opportunities. It's God who gave us the innate, innate talents and gifts that we have. These things don't belong to God. To us, they belong to God. Sort of like Mark Twain's comment about a wealthy man who'd made his money in some shady ways. And someone asked Twain, well, don't you think his money is tainted? And Twain said, of course it's tainted. Taint yours and taint mine. <laughs> Our money, jobs, connections, taint yours and taint mine. They belong to God. They're on loan to be used for him. And one of the things I love about all of you is that you do this. In your offices, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, you're using what God has given you to make a difference. One of the ways we're doing that together as a community, you just saw in the video, is the ripple effect. Capital campaign we're doing, three years to, to, uh, to, to replace the aging education building up the hall, up the hill, to have a place for our kids to hear about Jesus, to start the Jubilee Reach Center where we can help needy families in our community and to provide education and water for children in Sudan and build a center for champions in Rwanda, which will get several hundred street kids a year off the streets, give them job skills so that they'll have a future and literally not die. And as of this month, we're halfway through that three-year campaign. And we've collected 52% of the pledges, which is a very strong first half. And today, here at halftime, I just want to take a few minutes in this sermon to say thank you. Thank you. Way to go, church. You're doing a great job. Because of you, lives are being changed and will be changed when these three projects are complete. Starting with the kids who come to this church. On the building front, we are right now working through the permitting process with the city, which has been enlightening for me. <laughs> I've learned a lot taken a little longer than we want, mostly just because the city is very busy. But we hope to begin construction this spring. And that new building will be a great tool to help us help our youth discover Jesus. And to me, that is so important. Because when I look at the counterfeit purposes our culture offers our youth, that happiness is, is found in buying the next video game, or that your worth is measured in your GPA or your SAT scores, that stuff just leads to heartache. Our youth need to know that there is a God revealed in Jesus who loved them enough to die for them rather than lose them. 
Several years ago, a family from our church sort of felt God nudging them to go to Indonesia to work with Mission Aviation Fellowship, an organization that flies missionaries and badly needed supplies into remote parts of the world. And they had two preschool-aged children. And right before they left, I asked the wife, I said, wow, aren't you afraid to move your children to the jungles of Indonesia? I mean, that seems kind of dangerous. And she said, you know, I was out shopping the other day, and I saw a bunch of teenage girls wearing almost nothing in order to get some guy to notice them, because that's what our culture has taught them makes them valuable. Or I look at my own kids and how at even just three or four years of age, they've already become consumeristic. And then she looked at me and she said, you've got kids. If I were you, I'd be the one afraid to raise kids in this culture. I'll take my chances in Indonesia. That was a good answer. Right? That was a good answer. The new building will be a great place where our youth can discover their real purpose and the adventure of knowing Jesus. Then there's the lives that are being changed at the Jubilee Reach Center. Over 22 programs to help families in need. Everything from before and after school classes to help kids in school to English as a second language. All done in the name of Jesus. One of the new things we're doing out there is is helping folks who don't have access to computers get computer skills because that's indispensable in this culture. But we're doing it in a very relational way. It's interesting. A lot of these families don't speak the language. They come from other countries and, and they're sort of sometimes embarrassed that they don't have computer skills. So for the first couple of days of this class, all they do is share stories and show pictures of their families to create a community. There's a man named Fernando who came one day and he didn't even know how to work a mouse on a computer. He'd never really seen one. But by the third class, he was smiling and laughing and talking about how how all of this is going to bring him closer to his kids because now he can participate better in their education. It's not about computers. It's about community and connections and relationships and Jesus. Plus, as always happens in these deals, those of us who serve get way more out of it than the people we serve. This week I heard a story about a woman who volunteers out there. and One day she was playing Candyland with an 8-year-old girl named Christine. Only this woman kept getting cards that only let her move one space while Christine was going ten spaces at a time way ahead of her, right? I'll I'll finish the story in this woman's words. This is what she wrote. She said, well, I, I started to feel that yucky feeling I get when everyone else is doing well, but I'm in shambles. Nothing like a game where I'm not doing well to bring out the frustrated inner child in me. Well, I got a little dramatic when I drew a card that actually sent me backwards. Then Christine, in a sweet, barely audible voice, said... It's only Candyland. <laughs> I burst out laughing out of the mouth of babes. I kept that gift in my heart all day long and found many occasions to tell myself, it's only Candyland. Like when I was stuck and frustrated in traffic or when the copier at work malfunctioned yet again or when I kept getting interrupted while trying to finish some important work. It's only Candyland, I said to myself and smiled. What a gift. Okay, who's helping whom in that story? I don't think it's this volunteer so much as it is a little eight-year-old girl who gives a performance-driven Eastsider bent on dominating the Candyland board, not to mention traffic and copiers, a much-needed lesson in chilling out. I think we can all use that, don't you? I mean, maybe we should just say that to ourselves all week. It's only Candyland. And as a performance-driven Eastsider, I think I need to go find this little girl and play Candyland with her. And then there's the ways we'll be helping kids in southern Sudan get an education. And Rwanda, the Center for Champions, will be done this spring. This summer I was at a conference where one of the speakers was a filmmaker. And 
One of the things he did was he set up cameras on street corners in cities all over the world at night to record what goes on in the streets there. And the film clips were just devastating. One clip showed a little girl about five years old all alone at night on the streets of Calcutta. And she, at one point, she put down this blanket and spent literally the next three or four minutes arranging it. Arranged it first one way and, and then another. And finally, she sort of straightened it out some more. I mean, for like three or four minutes. Finally, she laid down on it to go to sleep while all kinds of people just walked right by her on that street corner. All she had in the world was that blanket. She couldn't have been more than five. And in arranging it, taking such care to arrange it, it was like she was trying to carve out some space of personal dignity for herself. Another clip showed a little girl in Africa who was, again, only four or five years old, and she was carrying a baby, most likely her, her baby brother. Who knows where her parents were? She was all alone with this little baby. Again, she's only four or five years old. She's just trying to protect this little baby. So she carefully spreads out a blanket on this street corner and then gently laid this baby down, covered him up, and then got close beside him, and they both went to sleep for the night on a crowded street somewhere in Africa. I have a four-year-old daughter. And when I was watching those clips, all I could think of was my daughter in that place. And my eyes filled with tears, and it felt like someone had put a vice grip around my lungs. And then I got one of those thoughts that I've learned to recognize as the Holy Spirit, and it said, Scott, remember, you and your church are doing something about this. And then I remembered that six months from now, hundreds of kids in Rwanda will not be going to sleep on a street corner anymore because of the ways that God has called us for such a time as this to rescue those kids in the name of Jesus and give them job skills so that they can have a future and so that they will not die. And in that moment, it wasn't a feeling of, oh, you know, I've done my part. I don't have to do anymore. That feeling wasn't, oh, we're better because we're doing this and someone else isn't. That wasn't the feeling. It was a feeling of thankfulness. To have been given the privilege by God to keep a couple hundred kids a year from having to make their beds on the mean streets in Rwanda. As well as help families in our community and our church experience the love of Jesus. And all of that and so much more is happening because like Esther, for such a time as this, so many of you chose to reject the false purposes of our culture and embrace God's purposes for us instead. And we do that in lots of ways as a community, not just through the ripple effect. We do it in all kinds of ways when we show the love of Jesus in our homes, our offices, our neighborhoods. But today at the halfway point of the ripple effect, I just want to say to you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Together we're making a difference. And keep it up. We've had a great first half, but we need to finish the game, so keep fulfilling your pledges as you've done so wonderfully. If you can, do a little bit more, that'd be great. If you haven't pledged, it's not too late. There are commitment cards in these little black folders here or lying around somewhere. Don't worry, we'll take your money. <laughs> and all the extra funds will be distributed across all three projects, which will help us do more in Africa, more for families in our community, and offset any potential cost overruns here. But mostly, I'd like to invite you to give so that you can be part of what God's doing. It was a good feeling when I was watching those clips. To realize that, of those kids, to realize that I can't save them all, but I am part of helping save some. It's a good feeling, and I'd like you to have it. And the the reason it was such a good feeling is probably the same reason it was such a good feeling for Esther. To realize she didn't exist to acquire more comfort, more wealth, more prestige, more image. She existed by the sovereign will of the living God to be part of what he's doing in this world. 
18 months ago when we were doing the capital campaign, one of, the, one of our attenders here got a phone call from a cable company that was trying to sell him a new subscription. And he and his wife had decided to cancel their cable in order to give more money to the ripple effect. But this telemarketer was really just putting on the pressure, just you know, offering special deals, talking up the wonders of cable, which in this man's case wouldn't have mattered because his wife always had control of the remote anyway. <laughs> so I kept saying, no thank you, no thank you, no thank you. But this telemarketer just would not give up, kept pressuring him. So finally this man said, look, my church is doing a capital campaign, part of which is to help kids in Rwanda literally not die so I can't afford your cable. He said it was the first time in his life he managed to shut up a telemarketer. <laughs> and that's a miracle, right? What could the guy say, right? Plus, he said it was just fun to say no to the counterfeit purposes of our culture and step into something bigger, larger, richer, deeper than ourselves. Because, you see, we were not made to consume. We were not made to acquire pleasure after pleasure. We were not made to rack up accomplishments on a resume. We were not made to atrophy and comfort and complacency. We were not made to cave into our culture's demands. We were made to partner with the triune God of grace in making His kingdom come and His will get done on earth just as it is in heaven. And all that we have and all that we are was given to us by Him. And how do you know? How do you know? How do you know that you have not been put in the place you're at for such a time as this? Church, what I want to say to you is well done, well done, well done. Now let's finish the game, partner with Jesus, and send the devil running back to hell where he belongs. Amen. Lord, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the privilege it is to be invited into what you're doing in the world to be part of your rescue operation. Lord, help us to do that in lockstep with you, in partnership and intimacy with you, and help us to do that in joy, and we will give you all the glory. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.